there's this uh, passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul's talking about the glory of God and how it's come near to the people of God. And he uses this really interesting illustration. He says, we are, as the people of God, the ones who, although we're these sorts of clay vessels, we have this immense glory and treasure within us to share. And I don't know if it's just, I don't know why I'm particularly weepy, uh, maybe this morning, but I was reminded, maybe through our singing, through Trisha's sharing, through the song that we just heard, of the profundity that comes in really just simple, seemingly unimpressive things. And this is how often God operates in the world, is he takes those things that the world identifies as just like, ah, they're just the clay vessels to things. And yet these clay vessels are the containers of the glory of God. And they reveal the beauty and the goodness of God to the world. And now somehow i got to follow all of that, which is going to be tough acts. Before we jump into God's word, let's pray together. God, we, we, we want to be the types of people who have your glory within us. We, too, recognize that we're just these earthly clay vessels. And we ask, God, that you would somehow, through the midst of whatever it is that we're doing through my preaching even now, just reveal yourself through your people to the world. We long to be the types of people who just reveal your glory, your goodness, your beauty, your grace in so many ways. And so we ask, God, that through the proclamation of your word that we might become more and more these types of people, that you might just seep deeper within our lives and our hearts to be able to do this sort of missional, missional work in the world, God. Be with us now. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is you're wanting us to see and hear. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? I think it's going to be up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. Clear the BKG. Yeah, my bad, Darren. Our reading comes from uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, starting in verse 20. One time Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. We might use the word parable. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth. All sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never 
be forgiven. What? We'll get to that. (laughs) This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying, he's possessed by an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with him. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. Oof. That might be the one verse I get asked the most about in uh, ministry. Why is this unforgivable sin? We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Cemetery, the place where faith goes to die. My mentor chuckled from across the round table we shared at Starbucks that Saturday morning. Our conversation centered around the journey that I was about to embark on as a pastor in training. Seminary. His dad joke pun, seminary and cemetery, get it? They kind of sound alike. (laughs) Was a play on words of how he had seen faith unravel in the lives of friends and acquaintances who enrolled in seminaries for vocational training. These were folks who had a love for God. They discerned a divine call to dedicate their lives in service to God's church and to God's mission. After years of studying and tens of thousands of dollars spent, seminary had become the cemetery in which they laid their faith to rest. My mentor's words that day were not a warning of the dangers of seminary. He was not beckoning me to withdraw my enrollment from the school in order to save my faith. His intentions rather were clear as he prayed for me that day. Father, may Aaron have an openness to a deeper and fuller knowledge of you. The great pitfall that my mentor was bringing to my attention that morning had to do with what I describe as box faith. Box faith is the kind of faith that places God in a tidy, contained box Boxes have clearly defined walls. You can easily tell what's in the box and what's outside of the box. You see, people with box faith, they have God all sorted out. They know with categorical certitude what God is like and what God isn't like. They know what the Bible clearly and obviously says. That's my favorite sort of misnomer. Well, it's so obvious that the Bible says this about God. Any challenge to their notions of God and faith are dismissed and can never be taken seriously. And they have names, those with box faith, for people who challenge their beliefs about God. Heretic, dumb, unorthodox, liberal, conservative. And seminary in many ways and in my experience removes the walls of these boxes that we have made for God. And for many who have spent a lifetime developing their box for God, this process is a destruction of their faith. There are four books in the Bible that give us biographical accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospel of Mark, which we read from this morning, is the oldest of these accounts. One of the distinguishing features of Mark's Gospel is 
It just cuts to the chase in everything. There's no genealogy accounts of Jesus' family lineage. There's no nativity narrative where Jesus is in a manger and there's hay and there's donkeys watching him and Mary as he, I don't know, enters into the world. There's no childhood stories of Jesus' adolescence. Mark's gospel simply begins with the moment that Jesus' ministry is inaugurated or initiated in the world. And the heart of Jesus' ministry, the purpose of Jesus' ministry, comes to us in the first words that he speaks in Mark's gospel. In chapter 1, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is central to the teachings and ministry of Jesus. We might say that the kingdom of God is a shorthand way of talking about the decisive act by which God would redeem his people. The Old Testament hope was that the one true God of Israel would rescue his people from the oppressive rule of their enemies and establish his rule in their place. Once God saved and redeemed his people, they would be the ones through whom God would redeem the world. To frame it succinctly, the kingdom of God is a complex of a king a people, and a law or a rule. And to be sure, there were no shortage of expectations for what the saving act of God would look like, what the kingdom of God would look like when it was established. And underlying all preconceived hopes of what the kingdom of God were to look like were answers to two really important questions. What is God like and who are the people of God? Who are the people that God is going to redeem? Who are the people through whom God was going to move his mission of redemption and restoration forward in the world? And how those questions were answered shaped the way a first century Jew thought about the kingdom of God. Now, if there was any group of people in Jesus' time who were qualified to offer an informed vision of what the kingdom of God would look like, it would be those we find in this morning's passage. I think in the New Living Translation, if I read it correctly, which I think that I did, they talk about generally the teachers of religious law. In other translations, you hear them described as the scribes. Uh, More specifically, they're not just scribes, but they're scribes from Jerusalem. Scribes were recorders and copyists of uh, predominantly the significant literature within the Jewish faith. Without the widespread availability of printers and printing presses, copies of important documents were handwritten. Can you imagine? I think I've shared this before, handwriting a copy of the Bible. I heard this once when I was actually in seminary, and I was like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to make myself a handwritten copy of the Bible. So I got this journal, and I was like, I'm going to start in the beginning. I'm going to start with Genesis. And I was like, man, you got to write real neat, you know, and you can't make any mistakes. So it's this really tedious process. And I got through, like, Genesis chapter 11, and I was like, no, I'll just go buy one. What is the point? What is the point? But the scribes, because of their familiarity with the scriptures... And with the the significant Jewish traditional interpretations of the scriptures, they were were, um, kind of perceived as sort of expert interpreters of the Bible, of the scriptures, of the Old Testament. Their familiarity with the scriptures and with their faith traditions made them just these prominent figures within Jewish society. 
But these particular scribes that we find in Mark's gospel in chapter 3, they're not just any sort of set of ordinary copyists or scribes. These were scribes from Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem served as the headquarters of the Jewish faith. It was the location of the temple and central to all of the activity of God's people. And because the scribes' interpretations of scriptures were intended to be applicable throughout all of the Jewish community, what would often happen is you would have the most prominent and significant scribes would live in, a, in, in one city where they can kind of go back and forth with their interpretations and from this one spot have conclusions about what the, what the uh, um, sort of ramifications for their interpretations were for God's people. And from that one place, they would disseminate their interpretations of law. Jerusalem was one of those places. These are the brightest, the best. They are scholars, experts in Jewish law. And we see in this morning's passage that scribes from Jerusalem, which is about 85 miles from where Jesus' ministry begins, they have heard rumblings about a man named Jesus from Nazareth. News about Jesus has spread. You see, Jesus has announced that the kingdom of God, the decisive, saving, and redeeming act by which God would, would free his people from their oppressors has been inaugurated through them. They have heard stories of Jesus casting out demons and healing the sick and the lame. No doubt they were aware of Jesus' confrontations with the scribes and religious leaders in his area. And they must have been horrified by the company he was keeping. Mark records that large crowds were drawn to hear Jesus' teachings. Many of those in the crowd were, Mark says, tax collectors and sinners. This is the biblical way of saying sleazy, sleazy immoral type of characters, like lowlifes, like this degenerate type of people. These are the ones who are drawn to Jesus. By the estimation of these experts in Jewish theology, the, quote, ministry of Jesus looked nothing like the kingdom of God that they expected. The king who would save Israel, the Messiah, wouldn't be from some podunk town like Nazareth. He certainly wouldn't be hanging out with the lowlifes and dejects of society. And don't even get them started about those with whom he spent time with, people of God. It's almost laughable that those could be the true people of God, the corrupt, pathetic, immoral nothings of the Jewish faith. But after making their trek from Jerusalem, these scribes sat in a house. They wanted to see firsthand for themselves, what is this Jesus all about? What is he actually teaching? To whom is he actually gathering around himself? And it didn't take long before the whispers that they heard in Jerusalem were confirmed about Jesus' message and his ministry and the company that he was keeping. He was pronouncing the kingdom of God in ways that didn't fit into their expertly, scholarly, crafted box faith. God doesn't look like this. God's people don't look like these people. And like people tend to do when confronted with theological teachings that don't fit into their box of God, they label Jesus heretic, dumb, unorthodox, liberal, conservative. Only they use more forceful language. He's possessed by Baalzebel, and his ministry is performed by the power of demons. Holy smokes, that escalates really quickly. You see, it's so much easier 
to dismiss people who challenge our boxes of faith with name-calling. It's easier to shout them down. That way we don't have to wrestle with the ways that they're challenging us. And the accusations of these scribes from Jerusalem give voice not only to what they thought about Jesus and his ministry, but they give voice, what we see in the scriptures, of what Jesus' own family thought about his ministry and teachings. You see, Jesus' mother and brothers think that he's insane. <laughs> the, the word there uh, that I think was translated uh, in verse 20, he's out of his mind, doesn't quite do justice with what the Greek word that we get that saying from. They think he's insane. They think that he's like mentally ill, like he is out of his mind crazy. This is what Jesus' own family thinks of him. What we see here in Mark chapter 3, that the ones closest to Jesus and the ones everybody perceived were closest to God are sitting with, listening to the Messiah, watching the kingdom of God break into the world afresh and anew for the first time. They're with the incarnate one the true king of the world, and they're blind to his ministry and to this reality. Jesus doesn't fit into their box faith. One of the beautiful things about the Bible being given to us in stories is that it allows us to identify with people, attitudes, and tendencies to which we can personally relate. We can relate to the family conflict and dysfunction that we see in Genesis. Anybody have a family that is not fully healthy? Yes? Okay, volunteer, yeah. We can relate to navigating the loss of loved ones like we read in Ruth. We can personally relate to Paul's confusion as to why he doesn't do the things that he wants to do and why he does the things he doesn't want to do. Don't we all kind of do that? Like, why do we do this, right? And these characters and these stories allow us to connect with, what, with God's word. But one of the great difficulties I personally have in allowing the scriptures to sort of challenge me in my faith is in identifying, or rather misidentifying, who most accurately represents me in the story. Which characters best represent my attitudes, my tendencies, and my shortcomings? I often read the stories of the blind, clueless, and misguided religious leaders of Jesus' day and think, can you believe those guys? Religious fools. And yet just the other day at Elevate, I was in the midst of a very calm, peaceful theological debate, and I was reminded, those at Elevate who were there may speak otherwise, but I was reminded that the best representation of the crazy religious leaders in our day our pastors, that's me. We are the formally trained interpreters of the scriptures. We are well-versed in the systematic boxes the tradition of Christian faith has created for God. And pastors, certainly, we need to be aware of the temptations to, to have box faith, to, figure, to think that we have God all figured out, and as a consequence, miss what God is doing in our midst. But let me reassure you, we do not face that trap alone. In 2013, Barna, uh, which is a research organization, did a study to measure how well Christians seem to emulate the actions and attitudes of Jesus in their interactions with others. They measured these actions and attitudes on a sliding scale 
On one end of the scale were the attitudes and actions of Jesus. On the other end of the scale were the attitudes and actions of self-righteousness, similar to those seen in Pharisees of Jesus' day. The actions like Jesus were represented in statements like this, I regularly choose to have meals with people with very different faith or morals from me. I am personally spending time with non-believers to help them follow Jesus. The actions of Pharisees that were represented in this study were represented in statements like, I don't talk about my sins or struggles. That's between me and God. I like to point out those who do not have the right theology or doctrine. The attitudes of Jesus were represented in the study with statements like, I believe God is for everyone. I feel compassion for people who are not following God and doing immoral things. Compassion is the thing that drives that attitude. The attitudes of Pharisees in this study were represented in statements like, I find it hard to be friends with people who seem to constantly do the wrong thing. I believe we should stand against those who are opposed to Christian values. Oof, trigger word, Christian values, right? And what's interesting, after self-reporting thousands of Christians and measuring them, where do they fit? Closer to Jesus, closer to Pharisees. They found that 86% of Christians, 86 86, almost 90, 86% of Christians polled reported to have actions and or attitudes that better aligned with those Pharisees than with those of Jesus. Perhaps then, it isn't just pastors, but all Christians who might want to rethink who they are in the stories we read in the Gospels. Sorry, I lost my place. It's kind of like that moment when, um, when David is confronted by the prophet Nathan. Are you familiar with this story? David is king of Israel. He has an affair with a woman who is married, gets her pregnant. To cover it all up, murders the husband. Crazy. He's the king of Israel. And so Nathan, this prophet of God, goes to confront David about this thing that he did. And when he goes to confront David, he tells this allegorical story of a rich man who steals a poor man's sheep and then takes it for his own. And this story that, that Nathan tells David just sends him in an outrage. He just spirals out of control, out of anger, wanting justice for that poor man. And Nathan responds with one of the most famous lines of the Bible, right? You are that man. You are the guy that you want justice for. Church, many of us sitting in this room, we are the scribes. You are the Pharisees, and so am I. And the thing about it is, I don't think anybody like wakes up as a Christian person like, I just want to judge everybody, and I just want to have these terrible attitudes towards unbelieving, broken people. But somehow, over time and life in the church, we just create these boxes of what the people of God are supposed to be like, what God is actually like. 
how people ought to behave, how people ought to live, what the kingdom of God, what people are allowed in and who isn't allowed in. And unintentionally over time, we just form this box of faith that blinds us. It potentially blinds us to the ways that God and the kingdom of God might emerge in our world and surprise us in meaningful, beautiful ways. Surprise. Jesus' response to the accusations brought to him in our gospel reading this morning should shock us. He doesn't respond to them in kind. He doesn't lash out with a label for the scribes, right? Well, if I'm a heretic, then you're a, right? No, Jesus doesn't do this. He merely points out the flaw in their thinking. If Satan were to cast out demons, he is fighting against himself. If civil war breaks out in the kingdom, right, it is the end of that kingdom. So if the devil is fighting against himself, the devil's kingdom is obviously coming to an end. So even if the scribes' analysis of the situation is correct, which it isn't, the kingdom of Satan is toppling. It's being dismantled and overwhelmed by the kingdom of God. But of course, this accusation is wrong. And Jesus informs them of what is actually going on in his life and in his ministry. The strong one, Satan, has been bound by the stronger one, Jesus. And this stronger one is burglarizing his home. The kingdom of God has invaded into this place and is rightfully claiming back those that Satan has led astray. This is the way that Jesus explains his ministry to the scribes. You see, Jesus' healings and the casting out of demons, they are signs that the kingdom of God is arriving, that people are being set free from the things which held them captive are signposts of the inbreaking of God's kingdom into the world. Here is your king, here are the people, and here is the rule of law by which I will reign in this world. But there's this little bit in verse 29 that we just we can't gloss over the unforgivable sin. I wish I had a dollar for every time somebody asked me this question. I have like $20. But but it sits in this text like a giant elephant in the room. Jesus says anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. What is this all about? Is there really a sin that isn't forgivable? Is there a sin so bad that God couldn't forgive it, right? Here is the philosophical dilemma. To put it simply, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the act of labeling what is in fact the work of God as the work of the devil. It is labeling the work of God in the world as if it were evil. It is recognizing the kingdom of God as if it were the kingdom of Satan, And committing it is kind of like holding on to a conspiracy theory. All the evidence you see will never confirm your belief, right? You will be blind to the truth. It's not that God gets especially angry with sins over, right, over all others, and this one in particular. But rather, I I heard this metaphor by one of my favorite writers. He said, If you firmly decide that the doctor who is offering to perform a life-saving surgery on you is in fact a sadistic murderer, 
you will never give your consent to the operation. And those who have decided that the work of God in the world is actually the work of evil, they are committing this sin. And they blind themselves to the work of God in the world. You see, the long-awaited king has arrived. And it doesn't look anything like the experts expected. The people of God, the ones that God was to redeem, and the ones through whom his mission of redemption would move forward have been identified. And they, too, look nothing like expected. The rule by which the kingdom would operate has been expressed. Obedience to the will of God is revealed through Jesus. It has been announced, and it is no less surprising. See, Jesus' ministry has effectually blown up the boxes of faith he was supposed to fit within. And the response of those witnessing these things is striking. Those we would expect to identify and receive Jesus, his family, and the scribes are standing outside of the home where our text takes place. And those outsiders, the the tax collectors and sinners, are sitting inside of the home. And those are the ones that are declared as Jesus' family. And the question that all parties in the story have to ask themselves, when God reveals himself as different from what I expected, am I going to cling to my box or I'm going to rework the way that I understood God? I cannot help but wonder what would happen if we let God tear down the walls of our boxes of faith. How might the kingdom of God surprise us? How might the king the people of God, and the rule of God surprise us. Jesus' words about what the king, what God was like, must have been striking in the crowds that day. I tell you the truth, Jesus proclaimed, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. All sin. All sin. Sins committed against others and sins committed against God. All of them can be forgiven. Many of us maintain mental pictures, a box of God who is judgmental, who is angry for our inability to live a morally pure and good life. This is true of both those who have faith in Jesus and those who do not. But hear these words, church. These are, this is good news. All of your sin, the big ones and seemingly small ones, your huge mistakes, and your minor mistakes. The ones committed years ago and the ones committed yesterday, they can be forgiven by Jesus. That's the impossible thing that Christine and Selene are singing about. It's grace. It's unchanging. You can have peace with God and within yourself if you place your faith in him today. What if the church bore witness to this kind of forgiving, gracious God. How might the world be surprised? What might happen in the church if we embraced Jesus' vision of the people of God? What might happen if we, like Jesus, welcomed and, and attracted and drew near to the tax collectors and sinners of our own day? What if we believed and practiced a faith that excluded no person for any reason from knowing Jesus and sitting at his feet? What What kind of church would that look like? 
Might the world be all the more intrigued with a Jesus whose followers and disciples embrace all people and beckon them into his kingdom way of living. Can you imagine what kind of church, what kind of faith that would be in the world? But what might happen in our church if we no longer felt pressured to be that we have it all together religious types of people and instead, instead admitted that we too are broken, that we too are imperfect, that we too are in need of redeeming and restoring ourselves. How might this change our friendships in this place? How might it change our small groups? What might happen if we lived in our authentic, flawed lives together? Dare I say, if this were the case, nobody in this place would ever feel like they were the only ones struggling in life. In the midst of great struggles, challenges, and even when we fell, we would feel supported and encouraged rather than isolated. What if we look like this vision of the people of God? Finally, what, what might happen if, if the rule of God, obedience to him, was the chief characteristic of our faith, the thing that identified us as the people of God? What if we didn't pride ourselves in church activity and the religious hustle and bustle of church life and ministry? What if instead we committed as the redeemed people of God to sit at the feet of Jesus together, listening and then doing what he commanded? What might happen with a people like that? What might happen if we, with all of our hearts, with all of our strength, our minds, with all of our being, that we loved God and loved other people? What, what might happen in a church where that was the rule of how we ordered and structured our community? If you don't know Jesus, I humbly share with you, it's this practice which can fill your life with direction and purpose, sitting at the feet of Jesus. The elusive search for meaning, knowing what your life is all about and why it matters can be found by knowing Jesus and by doing the things that he commands. And I invite you, if that's you, and make a new practice in your life today to sit at the feet of Jesus. But church, let Jesus dismantle the box faith that entraps and limits what he might do in and through us. Instead, allow your faith to be the foundation upon which God can build the kingdom. My prayer for you this week, in just like studying and thinking about this stuff, has been the one my mentor offered me all those years ago. God, may they have an openness to a deeper and fuller knowledge of you. And when we do this, church, we can be assured that God will accomplish infinitely more than we ask or think, or we might ask or think. This is, after all, how God operates in surprising, compelling, and good ways. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we're so grateful that we can't box you in. We're so grateful that your grace is so much greater, that your love is so much bigger than that which we have even experienced to this point. And our longing and our desire, God, is that you might sort of extend and grow and stretch the way that we understand your kingdom, that, that you might enlarge the, the, the views that we have of you, the views of who might be a part of the redeemed people of God. 
that you would call us into faithful discipleship, sitting at your feet, listening, and then doing the things that you command. God, we believe that if we were this kind of church, if we were this kind of people, and because you are this kind of God, that you can do more than we can ever imagine. We submit ourselves to the many ways that you surprise us, God. May your kingdom come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.